This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann. I'm in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin. And I am joined from, I think he's at the Polytech today, he's got a background on, by Phil Osborne. Kia ora, Phil. Kia ora, Sam. Good to catch up. How? We've had you on before. When we get to the questions at the end, I'm going to expect the same answers, so I can hopefully remember. How's your bubble life going? Yeah, pretty good. Um, it seemed it was actually quite different coming back to New Zealand to resume bubble life here, having escaped it for a little while to head to Germany um, for for the resumption of international teaching. That sounds fun. When I last saw you, you were flying out the next day, and the challenge was planning to get back. Yeah, that, and I, I have actually talked about this with quite a few people since coming back, that the most complex part of organising the trip was actually the return to New Zealand and all that that engendered, given that originally I thought it was going to be the problem um, arriving in Germany and providing enough evidence for them, but um, that didn't end up being the case not only in reality but also in theory as everybody thought it was much more difficult to get permission um, and required a whole bunch of things to be done that actually Germany and I'm assuming the rest of Europe didn't actually care about anymore. I saw that the other day. I saw a thing that say, has the pandemic is the pandemic over? No, it's just that we've stopped caring about it. Yeah, and that would probably be a... I don't know if we stopped caring. I think we've stopped ascribing the importance that we gave it. I think people are still um, conscious of it, but that the the worst of the, the peaks seem to have gone through the rest of the world, while New Zealand's... I don't know. My experience that I talked about with people over there was that it became very real in New Zealand, or especially in Dunedin, in um, what February and March this year with the with the Omicron variant, and that the previous two years hadn't been so significant in New Zealand. Whereas over in Europe, it felt like they were already six months beyond their peaks, and so other things had started to um, imp- well, you know, get into their minds. 
in particular, and I will talk about this a little bit later, in particular, their local, local, local geographic issues like war with Russia. Just a minor thing. So yeah. what were you in Germany for? So if this was a resumption of a great project um, implemented by FHWS. Um, I go to the campus in Schweinfurt, but it's across both of their campuses, where they have had a what they call an international teaching week in which um, they invite academics from around the world to basically teach a week-long summer school. Um, at the Schweinfurt campus, which I attend, which concentrates on engineering and business, they have about, well, this time about eight to 12 international academics, but across both campuses, I think the number jumps up to something in the 30 to 40 international um, academics who have some connection um, and maybe even some formal arrangement with if, if exchange arrangements with if, FHWS. Um, and this year I was delivering a course on, um, oh, what was it called? Oh, marketing in the digital age. Do they want something new each year? Um, no, <laughs> no, although each year your course is peer reviewed by faculty to see how it fits into their program but then is also voted on by the students um, in terms of them enrolling in your paper. And if uh, if you don't get 20 enrolments, then you don't go, or it doesn't go onto the schedule. So there is some um, pressure to make sure your content's um, contemporary, let's say. Um, and I have been twice before and delivered something uh, something completely different. What's the take-home message from that course? Um, well, it was interesting. It was an interest. It was an interesting exercise from my end as well, in the fact that it's a course that we haven't delivered at Polytech in Dunedin yet, um, but was forthcoming. So it was a little bit of a trial, and also it enabled me to think about where. Europe was in terms of digital marketing practice compared to um, New Zealand slash Australasia. Um, so the take home was that the fundamentals of marketing remain the same. It's just the tools that have changed and that the tools, the digital marketing tools have are actually re reaching burn out a lot faster than some of the traditional um, methods that marketing has used. For example, the, I guess the product life cycle of the social media platforms seems to be burning out much quicker. Um, for example, not many, and I guess it is reflected in New Zealand a little bit, um, there was not many of the learners over there who use Facebook at all for anything. And in fact, not even using Google so much that using Amazon as their search engine, uh, especially when it came to products or whatever, and that would be their first basis because it includes all the product reviews and they would get a base price from Amazon and then they would go out and look at what other suppliers were offering. So there was some interesting um, aspects of, of it taking taking place in another continent 
You said that the the life cycle of the platforms is getting faster. Is the life cycle of I don't know what to call it issue management, product issue management must be getting really fast. Yeah, I, I think so. Although <clears throat> I think the lockdown had a similar effect on people over the last three years, where people tend to slow down and traditional things were re-emerging. Um, I guess the best example of that and a possible guest for future Blowing Bubbles is um, a colleague who hosted me over there, Dr. Marcus Schultz, who during the um, lockdown had begun playing board games again, um, and not, not online gaming, but board actual physical board games, and when returning to campus had thought about um, instigating that with his students to try and um, accelerate community again. Um, And on the first night of offering it, had 30 students turn up to play. And in a fortnight's time, the second time he did it, had 120 students turn up to play, (laughs) which he has now turned into a, um, a bit more of a research project about why is that and also how gaming and people's interaction in gaming can be used to assess um, the development of soft skills. So, so yeah, talking with Marcus about that, about how it sort of came out of that return to something traditional and how that has now seemed to have got a lot of traction in the, what I don't know what we're calling it. Are we calling it post, post-pandemic environment yet? I don't know. We were talking the other day about we didn't have a word for the, the bit between lockdowns. Yeah, we've got to find a word for that first, and then you're right because it's it's the what the whatever it is now. Yeah, and the whatever it is now, I think is is was one of the big differences that I did experience. Um, that you can read a lot of things about what's going on in the world, but the actual experience of getting there is quite um, substantively different. And I mean, even with Germany, which is well known for its bureaucracy and quite a lot of um, transparency in its policies and stuff throughout the throughout the EU practice, that I had gathered a picture of it being quite. Um, I was expecting it to be quite strict, and especially with outsiders coming in all the way from New Zealand. But my first interaction at the um, customs border police was a request to pull my mask down which i thought was so that they could check the photo on my passport but it was actually his words were you can take that off you don't need masks anymore you're in germany um which was quite unusual and that that only and it only took him 30 seconds then to stamp my passport and i was into the country i'm not even sure whether he checked my international vaccine passport that you're required to print out. Um, I'm assuming they're relying on the airlines to police that. Um, yeah, but certainly had no issues once I was um, in country in Germany, for sure. Let's take a time that's perhaps celebrating a time that wasn't so free in Germany or the transition from that. Let's have Pink Floyd. Is there anybody out there? Why this one? Um, I don't know. I, 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 it, 
I guess the uh, the international travel ban felt like the wall coming down to a certain extent. Um, was very it was was very celebratory feelings when um, international travel got signed off again. So I can only imagine that might have been similar to when the wall came down for the Germans. Phil, we've talked before about how the pandemic perhaps changed the values of marketing or the values that it was appealing to, that it, we went from a almost hedonistic time before the pandemic to one that was much more about family values and connections and um, sort of enjoying the, t- enjoying the place or something like that. Yeah. I think that's what we, des- what we decided it was. What are we looking at now? Yeah, I think some of that has has transferred across. Um, I think some more of that, um, what will we call it? I think that hedonism is is starting to reemerge, but probably not so much in its symbolic nature. Um, we were talking in this marketing course about the the functional hedonic and some symbolic elements of value, and that. Um, and that 
in more modern times, I guess, the hedonic and the symbolic has become more important um, over time, whereas perhaps after COVID and being locked up, the symbolism of your consumption is not so important, but you still there's still that um, pleasure-seeking element um, as being part of the messaging and part of the consumption cycle for sure. Um, I think there has been a a re-examination of the importance of function um, in the value equation, like making sure that that things are performing to expectations. I think that sneaked back in a little bit, um, possibly because being locked in your house, you were pretty disappointed if things didn't work as expected and there was no quick fix, whereas, you know, when you're out and about, you can probably... Um, replace an option or replace something that's not working reasonably quickly. Um, so in, in terms of that, I think we still have that fluidity um, in, in terms of value formation. In terms of the big V values, I think whatever <clears throat> whatever was at the forefront during lockdown or came to the forefront for the individuals during lockdown has um, – become more embedded, yeah? So I think people were dealing with waste a lot over lockdown, so that sustainability aspect of consumption raised its head because you really had to think about what you were doing and the consequences of your actions and stuff like that. So I think there was some of those big values, whatever they were for you during lockdown, have now translated into consumerism going forward. Um, I think that also has had an effect and effect on the organisations who went through that same, um, let's not call it, well, let's call it navel-gazing time. The organisations really had to re-examine their purpose and their business models. Um, I'm not sure whether that's any different across the international divide. Um, just like the thing that makes me think about that um, currently is how coming out of lockdown, as we talked about, a lot of organisations have realised that business as usual isn't going to cut it anymore, right? Um, and that there isn't going to be an automatic reset and that the, should we call it social licence for business? has um i want to say contract uh not contracted what's the word got smaller you know like the right the right to be in business is not as out there as it used to be people is it more a, a higher burden to stay in yeah yeah a higher burden to stay in a realization that we maybe don't need 20 organizations delivering pretty much exactly the same um, service or product. We talked that, initially that, a lot we talk, about. We talked initially a lot about pivots. Yep. Do you think that those organisations that successfully pivoted is that and have survived because of it? Were they good organisations in the first place? Um, I think maybe we can talk about the ability to undertake a pivot. Right. So I don't think every organisation got their pivots correct. 
But I certainly think it made organisations think about their agileness um, and their ability to respond to the environment. I think it also was a wake-up call for the fact that the future has always been um, ambiguous. Like I think we said, I think organisations and managers and even people have said that a lot over the last decade, but haven't realised what that meant because we've had a reasonable run of stability. And now the reality of the fact that the environment is dynamic and we don't control a lot of it requires that we have to be light on our feet, both as people and as organisations. So I think some of the stuff that we were talking about prior to lockdown, agility and lean thinking and um, those sort of concepts became much more real for mainstream businesses rather than just those ones just those 10% that were already practicing them beforehand. In some industry, and I'm thinking of tourism, we've seen a whisper of a, a reset in terms of people. There, there, is, there is some people talking about regenerative tourism and slow tourism, but we're also seeing pretty heavy advertising of, please come back to Queenstown, please come back to the Gold okay. Coast, please come back to the Cook Islands. Yeah, I think I think... To be fair, that's a reflection of the sunk costs in those industries. It's hard to let them go, right? If you've invested, even if it's not, even if it's not financial resources, but a portion of your life into that business model, it becomes pretty hard to let it go. Um, especially when, you know, for a lot of people, especially in the tourism industry, that was the only positive that they could look to during the um, lockdown was this return of the of the tourist and I, but I think we're getting some inkling that it's not going to be the same um, that people are not going to have the same reasons for traveling um, and therefore the needs and the wants might be different as well I mean, I was thinking about, from the tourism perspective, what type of customer, for example, would be prepared to come on a three-month backpacking trip to New Zealand now, given the very real possibility that getting stuck here due to lockdowns may be quite real, as some of our friends and colleagues would have experienced with their trips to Australia. Um and also the whole idea of can I, for New Zealanders travelling away, can I get back to New Zealand within a um, period? That was, I think, to be fair, that was the biggest um, that was the biggest issue on my mind while travelling overseas was keeping keeping up to date with what's going on in New Zealand and the possible changes that they might make, plus the already reasonably high barrier for entry that they require for people coming here. New Zealand has always been on people's bucket list. And in the last few years, we have seen a, well, I've seen an increasing number of people saying, it's a shame I never got to New Zealand, but we can't travel there because of the, the carbon. Yeah. Are you thinking that that's when you're in Germany, did, did people say, I'm still planning on getting there? 
Um, I guess that might be a, a circle that I'm travelling in over there, right? So reasonably mobile academics and um, students with a global outlook. Um, so they were still talking about it, but it certainly felt like the whole distance to travel thing had come back into their mindset. Um, I was traveling with some New Zealanders that had managed to get back to New Zealand after the three years of being closed down. Um, and they were traveling back to their, where they live um, currently in Europe and um, Dubai. And both of, or at least two, maybe three of those people who were New Zealanders and had come back to New Zealand but were now returning were actually thinking that they weren't going to be coming back to New Zealand in the, in any, in the foreseeable future either. Some of it perhaps for the um, carbon stuff, but I think mainly because they realised how far away New Zealand is and that it is that 12 or 14 or from Europe 28 hours um, and that how different is what we've got in terms of geography? Yes, the culture maybe, but in terms of geography, can't I see some fjords in Scandinavia? Can't I see some beaches and rainforests in places that are a little bit closer to home? That that was the sense that I got, is that they were really, if they were considering it, they were really looking for a substantive reason. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi araha nui, kia koutou, ko I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope, wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proven to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and who you are triumph of nature's art perfect unique and here making things better thank you now i know that for us all the last more than two years have been very tough we've had to really change so much about living our lives and we've never had to deal with these sorts of things of course we are dealing with all of this collectively not only with our fellow human animals but also with all life infinite web and this process of cultivating compassion cultivating understanding and connection in new ways has been so revolutionary and helpful for me i know and i hope for you too we have been able to be vulnerable and ask for help when we need it we have been able to talk about the impact of this pandemic on all our lives and share our feelings with the expectation that support will be forthcoming and these sorts of courageous conversations are so important especially if we are unacquainted with them this very process of opening up to one another opening up to ourselves making sure that we are aware of how our whole whole tenon and well-being is progressing is so important i'm talking to you of course from the very cozy white temple in my mansion and i've got the heater on and the electric blanket on and hopefully a lovely warm cat at some stage will arrive captain arthur hastings and 
I'm pouring through these folders of old acquitted grants and funding applications that have been put through over the last, gosh, more than 16 years at Orokunui Eco Sanctuary, my heart's home workplace. And of course, we are all struggling to find funding at the moment. So it's my mission to go through all of these old funding applications and find ones that are still viable and relevant for the kind of funding that we need. And it's really fascinating for me. And of course, I never saw this side of things. I've always really enjoyed prancing about with various people of various ages in the forest and that's been my main focus but being able to go back in time and see all the work and all of the passion and everything that has taken place at Orokunui from that different side is really helpful and of course it affirms for me the importance of everybody's strengths being appreciated and recognised everybody's skills having the opportunity to be used and really flourishing and coming to the fore. And of course, over the years, these different applications have been put together by different people and their style of writing and their approach is often quite different. And of course, this is a good reminder that we are all experiencing reality completely uniquely, that we can come together and share consensus reality But within that collective picture, of course, we are all contributing our own piece of the puzzle. And I really appreciate biodiversity in action. I love the different viewpoints and the different ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling. Different ways that we experience the world, that we express ourselves in the world. That we connect with the world around us. All these things are such a pleasure to behold. So I really hope for you wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, that you are having the opportunity to contribute with your unique skills and gifts, that you are feeling these gifts are being recognised, that you are feeling these gifts are being appreciated, that you can give that love and appreciation to yourself first and foremost, and also be inspired by the contributions of others. It's wonderful that we can give each other such inspiration. It's wonderful that we can give ourselves the love and support that we need. It's wonderful that we have our consciousness. Our consciousness is so flexible and ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-evolving. And something that I love, of course, with our consciousness is that we really can go anywhere and do anything. We really can harness our imagination to give ourselves new perspectives, give ourselves new understanding. And as I'm travelling through time today, with finishing the last folder, which is from R to Z, I will be really enjoying this consciousness, this ability to move back over those years and connect with the person writing these applications, read their beautiful words and learn from them. And of course this is happening all over the world, all different time frames. We're such an incredible species for our use of language and retaining knowledge, learning from one another, learning from the ancestors. It's really wonderful we're able to do this. And of course, we're not the only ones. All life is learning from one another. All life is holding such knowledge, such wisdom, stretching all the way back to Timataka. 
And we're very lucky, of course, that we have this great repository of, of knowing that surrounds us always. So I really hope for you, you're having the opportunity to really enjoy the consciousness you possess, that you're having the time and space to make use of it in a way that really serves your spirit and serves to energise and replenish you, that serves to give you a sense of purpose and direction, to give you a sense of satisfaction and adventure, that even if it is very cold and in some places covered in snow, that we can draw such sustenance from this power that we possess, these skills that we possess, to travel through time and space and enjoy what we find. I know that this cold weather can really allow a sense of gratitude and an embracing sense of the warmth and the security, the love that surrounds us. I know I feel very fortunate to be warm and cosy and have work that inspires me. I know that for all of us it's been a very tough time and the more we can do to really care for ourselves, be kind to ourselves, make sure we have everything that we need, make sure we're getting time and space that we need to process and recover. All of these things are so important. So thank you very much for having me as part of the show. I'm so grateful and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Phil Osborne, who's just back from a trip to Germany. Phil, the question we always ask about the societal change and whether we think it's going to stick and what you hope will stick, can we? What have you noticed that's changed in Germany? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, we'll, we'll circle back to what I mentioned before. Is obviously I was aware of the um, Ukraine war. And I was interested in what that would feel like over there. And it was very real, you know, it was very real. There were Ukrainians and people connected to the Ukraine and the the, uh, the perspectives on Russians. That was very much an everyday, you know, it was definitely a Europe at, not a full Europe at war scenario, but getting close to it, you know, people very concerned about, implications of this not being resolved or it being resolved in a certain way um lots of ukrainians around which i was i didn't put that together but when you think about the fact that six million of them i think have been displaced they have to go somewhere and germany is reasonably has always been appealing to displaced people um given it's the the thing that really was quite noticeable was the impact that the war had on petrol prices and therefore German, um, what do you call it, movement. So again, just going back to my host, I think he said that in the month prior to me arriving, petrol had gone up nearly €1.50, so nearly $3 a litre, um, and that had had a conscious impact on not only him but everybody else he knew um, to the stage that people were driving slower on the autobahn and were questioning their need for those for those trips and i think the day after i left the german government had brought in the um 
seven euros for a month worth of travel on the trains to encourage um, the use of public transport and put into put it into um, some sort of um, relativeness the distance between the two campuses of Schweinfurt and Würzburg is about 40 no yeah 40 minutes on the train and that was costing 12 euro each way so 24 euro a trip between the campuses and that had now dropped to 7 euro per month wow so so they were expecting even though their their utilization of of uh, public transport was quite high they were expecting it to go through the roof i hadn't followed up on that but certainly the students were like um really looking forward to the mobility that that was going to allow them and also the fact that it was going to get traffic off the road so those things which aren't related to covid but are certainly related to war like it's like one of those things you can't imagine that the fuel prices are going to rebound back to what they were and if it stays for long enough that people are going to want to expect it just like I can't imagine New Zealand is how they're going to react when the um, public transport subsidy comes off here. Did those students, are they mostly German or is it international? No, they're, they're mostly mostly international students, to be fair. But people, students from around the world who have had two, this is the third year of disruptions yeah. to learning because of COVID, and, yep. and now there's a war on top of that. Are they talking about the impact of that in terms of how they're thinking about their careers? Um, not so much about careers. I didn't. I didn't really get anything of the, any any inkling of that. Um, there was still general positivity about the careers, but what I did get, and which I think is similar, especially when talking to New Zealand and Australian colleagues, is the impact it's had on their learning styles. Getting them back to face-to-face teaching is difficult, you know. The value proposition, well, if we could do it um, asynchronously, why do we suddenly have to turn up at class at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Monday to learn this particular thing? Um, So I think that's going to have some impact particularly, and not just in tertiary, I think in, in learning in general, what that means for it which parts I know that that's one of the things that's come out of um, the lockdown phase for me individually is the real ex- examination of what it is that we're doing as teachers and how we can do it and what what artificial constraints have we built into our system that need to be examined. I think we talked about before about um, the university of Otago's choice to be geographically bound as we look around here and see them building lots of buildings that may or may not be filled with actual people going forward. is, a, is it's a, And it's a large strategic question. I mean, I'm imagining that the ACC in New Zealand is thinking about their choice to build a head office in Dunedin for 500 employees that probably been doing their work from home for the last two years and what sort of investment that is but from a regional perspective we must be able to use that kind of argument to say well actually we don't need to be in wellington 
Well, who's uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we've been. I mean, the house the house thing's interesting, isn't it? You know, that over the pandemic, it seems that the advantage or the disadvantage of living in some areas when it comes to property prices is evened out. I think it's certainly you could probably say it's still cheaper to buy in Dunedin, but that you know is five hundred and fifty thousand dollars as an entry level house, even though that's cheaper than Auckland. Is that actually realistic anyway for the people who are new home buyers? So for those people, maybe living in Dunedin is no different than living in Wellington. I know our rents are getting pretty close. I know the students are talking about that. That the rents are getting pretty close in Dunedin to um, other cities. Maybe there's some other things that are going to cause a more fundamental reset. Yeah, well, I think I think this I think we need to keep this idea of pivoting, reset, whatever, challenging the dominant paradigms at the forefront, because it certainly is an opportunity, right? And I think that's the thing that organisations and individuals. Successful organisations and individuals are recognising the challenges that COVID has brought on us, but also seeing them as the opportunity to question the fundamentals. And we know from past researchers that this is when innovation happens, right? Um, And it's quite often hard to get an individual or an organisation to challenge their preconceptions. And COVID has given us the opportunity to do that. So maybe those things that we're talking about, I mean, I think that's a po- that is the positive thing, is that things that we thought couldn't be done have been being done for the last three years. And from a marketing perspective, I can't imagine there's too many customers that were going to let you reset to your normal practice and take away some of those things that have uh, added value to their interactions. Is that the big lesson that we can take for things like climate change and social justice from the pandemic? The fact that actually we can do stuff? Yeah, I think so. And that we can do stuff differently. And yeah, okay, it took a massive jolt for us to realise that things don't have to carry on as they were. But we've realised that now, and I don't think there's any organisation, and whether that's a government department or an, or a commercial organisation, that can say in the future, oh, we can't do that because it's too hard. You know? Well, actually, the last three years have been too hard, and we've made we've we've got things to work. We've got things to work, and I think that I think some of the evidence in that, for me especially is how acceptable government intervention in the economy has become during this period. You know, like the government has, and it makes sense because that's the leaning of our government, but there seems to be a, a wider acceptance that the government has a role to play in society. I mean, they're still on the margin. There is quite a lot of, um, what would we call it, foot stamping going on in the margins but I think the general public see that or are accepting that the government has a role in establishing equity even across some commercial um, frameworks 
Is it a coincidence that the companies that we highlight as being disruptive, and I'm thinking of Uber and Airbnb, have been hit particularly hard by the the pandemic? Or is that just bad luck coincidence? Well, actually, this is a question. I think think it might be a coincidence, but I also think that as early movers, their business model wasn't perfect. Yeah? And that what we might see is the extension of their ideas and incorporation of those ideas into slightly different business models. Like, I was talking in Germany because they don't really have the Airbnb model so much, Um, but I was talking about how the idea of that might be utilised by somebody else in the accommodation industry, whereas it seems, you know, the the barriers to entry in the hotel industry have always been building a $50 million hotel. Well, I'm not sure how many $50 million hotels, what do you call it, the business case for a $50 million or $100 million construction for a hotel block of rooms would be sustainable anymore. Maybe it's that hotels become community housing while they're not um, hotel rooms, or maybe within within the single premise there becomes a a range of options from hotels to Airbnbs to long term rentals. I don't know, but yeah, I think I think maybe the disruptive business models were just a little bit. Um, if, Affected by timing, you know, because a lot of them rely on community and collaboration. And that's one of the things that was pulled back over um, over the pandemic. But also those two things seem to be things that we're craving as we come out. Hmm. I have some questions to end the show. You've had all these before, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is the biggest... And I can't remember them anyway. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, I don't know, buddy. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I am, I am very much focused on the impact of the pandemic on my practice, and I think I've probably be, had the opportunity to become better at what I do as a teacher. But also, I think I'm having... I'm just looking at one of your one of your slides. I think the organisations that I'm talking with are becoming more mature in the sense that they're they're thinking they're thinking in the way that I would have liked them to be thinking five years ago. So in terms of a success, I think I probably that's not my own success, but I think that's a societal success is that we're pushing out towards those margins and that purpose is becoming a much more substantial part of the conversation. What's your superpower? Uh, I keep being told that it's explaining complex things simply. Are you an activist? We all are. I'm pretty sure I said that last time. We all are, and it's on a continuum, right? And some people are up the front carrying the signs, and some people are in the back lobbying and creating advocates and um, allies. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Um, again, I think that revolves around what I do for a living, which is have conversations about improving the world. And somehow separating that from a buy more stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think the, I think the, I think some of the buy more stuff elements. I think everybody's got to buy more stuff of what they like and what makes them feel better. We just have to make sure that the more stuff they buy isn't creating harm. What is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Yeah, I, I think that's a real good one. I, I, I think that the opportunity that this reset has caused from an organisational perspective means that we're going to see some pretty amazing um, successes for organisations in, in the in the near term, and that's really exciting. And I think that they will display begin to displace some of those older entrenched forms of business that people who just can't be bothered with anymore. I think, you know, if we take in the short term, I think even supermarkets in New Zealand, for example, have got the ultimate challenge because their social life, and I'll use that word again, their social license is running out and that the opportunity for somebody to do something completely different is there. And the, what do you call it? The, the bit behind the wave, the surge behind the wave is coming. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? I think it's 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 the normal thing, isn't it? It it's keep a keep abreast of what's going on in the areas that you're interested in and um consume consciously because every dollar you spend is a vote for the organizations of the future. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome, Sam. We're gonna go out to David Hasselhoff, the song he sang on top of Berlin Wall, looking for freedom. One morning in June, some years ago, I was born a rich man's son. I had everything that money could buy, but freedom I had none. I've been looking for freedom. I've been looking so
been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Manning, Sawyer's based in Eden, and I have been joined from Otago Polytechnic in Dunedin by Phil Osborne. With that for Blowing Bubbles, we hope you enjoyed the show. Marty This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.